Okay, so today we're going to be reading again from Ephesians, and Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 17. So if you wanted to get one of those Bibles, they're at the crate at the back, and we'll be reading from page 1175. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to the sensuality so as to, not in, as, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and, and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may be something to, so that they may have something to share with those in need do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen and do not grieve the holy spirit of god with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption get rid of all bitterness rage and anger brawling and slander along with every form of malice be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's good to be with you. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Uh, my name is Mike Sams. If I haven't met you before, I'm the pastor here at Trinity Grove. And uh, it's great to be able to come together and look at God's Word uh, for, for a few moments. Uh, let me pray, and then we're going to get into uh, this passage that we've just, uh, just had read for us. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks so we can come together this morning. And now as we consider your Word, wherever we are at with you, seeking to uh, figure out how we live for you because uh, we love you, or whether we're not sure uh, where we are with you, or whether uh, following you is what we should do, help us now uh, to consider uh, Jesus and how he wants us to live in light, in light of what he has done for us. Amen. Um, I wonder if you've ever given any thought to the power of examples. The power of examples. Whenever you try and learn or teach something, uh, it's quite quite a powerful tool. Uh, I, every Friday afternoon this term, come to Pader, come here, and down at the Oval out the back, descending on us are about 60 kids in reception to year two to learn to play Aussie Rules. That's kind of hilarious that I'm teaching kids how to play Aussie Rules because I've never played it. I'm from Sydney and it's, uh, as much as I love it, it's not the game that I've ever got any skills or, or knowledge in particularly. 
So what do you do when uh, uh, Heath, the sports director, uh, has all these uh, drills and activities for the kids to learn to play and you've got 20 kids looking at you in reception at the end of the week, it's windy, sometimes a little bit rainy, the ground's wet and they're supercharged because they're getting to play sport. Okay, kids, this is what you do. You've got to go over there, run there, kick the ball to your friend, then handball it to him, then run around the circle. That doesn't work. (laughs) If you try and just tell kids what to do to teach them, which we have done, it is a disaster. What What we have to do is give them an example. So we line them up, we stay here, and I say, okay, now you guys, you're looking at me, watch. Maybe two out of the ten do, but at least two do. And you say, watch. Okay, now... Ian, the guy who's helping me, he is going to show you what to do and then you copy him, okay? He is your example. And so he runs, he's kicking the ball. I don't know why we have this drill, but we're kicking it like a soccer ball through a hoop and then we pick it up Then you've got to roll it with your hands. That makes more sense. You know the rules? Are you watching, kids? And then you pick it up and then you've got to run around me. And as soon as you run around me, you've got to kick it into the goals. And then they go, yeah, 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 we've got it. And then we do it. I'd love to say it's just a perfect success story, (laughs) but it actually does work on some levels. Examples are how you teach, but you don't just teach an example out there. I don't say to the kids, okay, kids, now let me give you an example. Did you see on the television the other day, someone do that, now you do that. That's an example. We get in with them. So the little ones particularly, okay, now you come and kick, I'm kicking it, you kick it, and we, we, we get in there with them. Examples are very powerful in learning and understanding things. If you're a teacher, many teachers out there, has anyone willing to say that you've never taught your kids with examples? No, good, the silence. And I know there's teachers out there because they help. Teaching maths, teaching a musical instrument, you don't just stay in theory, you get in, you show them, you give them examples. Christianity is no different. If you want to understand what life's about, the Bible, God himself through the Bible, teaches us by examples, a specific example. And when we think about examples, sometimes with the kids, sometimes as adults even, we need convincing that we need to be shown the example. I've realised that early parenthood, once kids kind of get to an age where they can kind of ration, rationally talk with you, it's about telling them, no, you don't just get to do it by yourself. Let me show you. No, no, I can do it by myself. Let me show you how to do it. No, no, I'll do it by myself. Okay, you do it by yourself. I can't do it. Okay, now let me show you. And that's kind of the cycle of toddler parenting and, and beyond. Sometimes we need convincing that there is an example that we should follow. Today is actually about following the example of Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that should not be news to you. And our job today is to wrestle with what does that look like and how do we understand his example? If we're not sure where we are with God or we're we're, we're just um, uh, interested in in some way, wherever at considering what Christianity is about, today gives you a little insight into the snapshot 
into why Christians should live the way they do in light of what God's done. And it's not out of rules or being strict or we need to be better than anyone else or being a good person per se, but because we have God wanting us to be like him and he shows us the way and we're motivated to be that way. So let's see that today. But to do that, I reckon we need a bit of a recap. We need a bit of a recap of what's happened in the book of Ephesians that we've been looking at. Um, if you're, if you haven't been here every week or you've only been here some of the weeks, let's, let, let's see if I can give you a, a snapshot of where we've gone with a few verses. And hopefully you'll pick up a bit of the logic of what's happened in Ephesians up to this point. First of all, Ephesians is such a fantastic book because without a shadow of a doubt, we have clarity on what God thinks life is all about. God's mission is that everyone is united to Jesus as one people. That's his ultimate plan. That is his goal. And we see that right at the beginning. Um, it should come up on the screen. Hopefully, there we go. Um, God, he, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. Here it is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That is the kind of mission statement, God's big picture plan. He wants people to be united to Jesus together. They've got to flesh out what that means. But that's God's plan. But there's a problem. The problem is people can't be united to Jesus because we have a big issue. And we see that Um, In the next verse, I reckon my battery might be waning. Here we go. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That's just, when we looked at that last week, what we were basically seeing is that the problem was, that Paul was telling the Ephesians was, God has this purpose for you to be united with Jesus, but you've rejected God so badly, he sees it as being dead. Dead men walking, if you like. That you've rejected him. In whatever way that looks, and we won't get into that now, The problem is you rejected God, but the goal is to be united to Jesus. How does this get fixed up? Well, it's not by us being good because we can't be good. So what was the solution we saw? The absolute crucial thing all of us must have clear in our head if we want to truly understand uh, God's relating to us. And we saw in Ephesians 2, but because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy made us alive. We were dead. And we can't make ourselves alive. God makes us alive with Christ. He unites us to him. Even when we were dead in our sins, in transgressions, he says. How does this happen? It is by grace you have been saved. That is, God has given you something you don't deserve. All of humanity can be given something they don't deserve because of our rejection of him, but he wants to save us And it's by grace where he dies for us. So Ephesians' message so far is big picture. The world's big picture, everything united to Jesus. But it can't happen because we've kind of gone, no, we're not actually big fans of that. We want to go our own way, make our own little kingdoms in whatever way that looks. And then God provides a way to fixing that up through himself, not us. And that's his beautiful, loving, gracious gift to us in Jesus where he dies in our place. And so we're made alive. So if you like, big picture, 
This is how we're saved by God, but there's more to the story that we've seen. See, if we are saved by God and to be united to him, we're to be a people. And we have saw that God's goal is therefore that we have peace. And so chapter 2 continues on, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away and have been brought near by the blood of Christ, he himself is our peace. He who made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. The two groups... God's uh, people that he established who had rejected him and, and, and were in a big problem because they should have known but didn't follow him rightly, the Israelites and everyone else, the Gentiles. These two groups hate each other in division and God's plan is that everyone comes together in peace. One people. And so we now have God's mission united in Christ. We have a solution to it by God through Jesus And that means we can be one people. And so if we're one people, the question remains, how do we live as one people? If God has saved us, I'm pretty sure it would be kind of crazy thinking to go, oh, God saved us, I do anything. Now we can all go do what we want because it doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't make any sense. And and, uh, Ephesians is very clear on that, wasn't it? That we have a work, work to do in Jesus. That doesn't make any sense. And so then the rest of the book, chapters 4 to 6, which we started to see last week, is all about figuring out how is this new people, are we going to live? And so in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then Paul, if you remember, was in prison when he was writing writing this letter to this uh, group in Ephesus. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You have received grace. Now, figure out how to live together in it, is what he's saying. And chapters 4 to 6 go on in great depth to talking about how you do that. You with me? You see the transgression that Paul has taken the people on? I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to last week's talk. I can say it was a a really good one because I didn't give it. it But it was really helpful because it helped us see that we do this together as one body and we think about other people. That's what was really helpful about the passage last week. And so in light of that, we have a new lifestyle to live. We could actually say, if you follow Jesus, you're a new human. You have a totally different way of thinking. And that's what we're going to wrestle with today. And in fact, it's what we're going to wrestle with next week. Because there's two parts, I reckon, as Peter Lockery is going to preach next week, he and I were talking about, we kind of see these two two sections as one whole thinking about how we live as different people using two different images. Today, we think about putting on something after we've taken off something. The putting off and putting on imagery which you may have picked up when we read the passage earlier and I'll bring us back to. And next week, the things that we're challenged to live by, we think about in darkness and then in light. And so we're going to wrestle with this uh, for the rest of our time together. And it'd be helpful if you've got a Bible in front of you uh, to have a look at the passage in front of us. Feel free to get up and grab a Bible. There's no problem getting up 
and grabbing one. <laughs> and it might be helpful to have a look at the outline if that's uh, useful for you. But the first thing I wonder we need to ask is, why do we need to actually be different? Why do we actually need to have a different way of thinking? Well, have a look with me at verse 17. Paul says in verse 17, that's all right, I've got no more verses on the screen for a bit. Thanks, John. Um, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. It's really interesting what he's, what Paul says. He's telling, he says, I'm telling you, you can't live as the Gentiles do. What he's basically saying by that, he's not saying that the Israelites were fantastic. He's saying the pagan lifestyle that the Gentiles lived, the Roman Empire that they were in, with all the, 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 the um, pagan rituals and the way that they lived and the way they saw morality and the way they thought and operated, you've got to get rid of that thinking, he says. But it's really interesting the way he says it, isn't it? It's not like, hey guys, I've got a good option for you. Let's have a wrestle with this. I reckon you should give this a crack. Have a look at verse 17 again. I tell you this, and insist on it, that you must no longer do this. This isn't an added extra for those who have been saved by Jesus. We need a totally different way of thinking. The Gentiles are futile. I love the word futile. Um, It just basically means stupid, ridiculous. Uh, I was no great... uh, a lover of English at school, and we had to do poetry. And when you have to do poetry, you have to kind of really remember a, 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 a article of poetry and and memorise it. And so I took the very uh, detailed, impressive way of deciding which one I'd choose. I chose the smallest one, and that was a poem by a guy named Wilfred Owen. Does anyone know Wilfred Owen? You do. Oh, wow. Impressive. Even some young people nodded then. Well done. Wilfred Owen was a great poet um, about about World War Two. He wrote these amazing amazing uh, poems about World War Two, and he had a had had one of them called. Can you guess? Futility. Yeah, you even looked for that one. Ah, do you want to tell everyone? That? <laughs> and basically, it's this great little little uh, bit of literature where he just shows. In a nutshell, my, my essay that I wrote in the exam was, he's just proven so beautifully and so powerfully, war is stupid. <laughs> and that's why he called it futility of war. It's futile. And what Paul is saying is that that thinking is no good for those who love Jesus. And he goes on to explain why. He says in verse 18... They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. That is, he's saying, that way of life, they're not aware of, they've got no way of seeing because they've they've actually chosen to turn away from God, to be hard to God's way. And so if they're hard to God's way, their thinking is not going to be the same as God's people. And so he goes on to say in verse 9, having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. The old way 
likes to indulge. And not indulge in other people or other things, indulge in yourself. And Paul is saying, which uh, the Bible talks about in other places where he talks to the Romans um, and he says, God has gives you over to that way. If you want to do that and get, get carried away in your ignorance and sin, well then go for it. And so every kind of impurity and being greed, selfish, is that way of thinking. And so why do we need a new way of thinking? Verse 20, that however is not the way you have learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. He's saying, that was an old way of thinking, but when you come to love Jesus, when you see that he has died for you, given life for you, so that you can be united to him, you have a totally different framework of thinking that you want to live his way, a way of life, not that just you get, it's there, you learn it. And you learn it when you hear about Jesus. And so, verse 22, he tells them, you were taught with regard to your old way of life, this futile thinking, this stupid thinking, to put it off. Put off your old self in verse 22 and have a new mind, a new attitude. It starts in your head to be made new in the attitude of your minds in verse 23. And so, to put on the new self. This imagery, I think, is very helpful. It's the, it's the imagery of the change of the seasons for me. By that I mean, I love, we're a bit away from it now, I love when we get to some point in September, and what I've discovered moving to Adelaide six years ago, I've had to postpone when this happens because it used to be kind of early September in Sydney but it's a little bit more closer to October in Adelaide when the season changes and you can take coats, they're so heavy and you can take them off because you don't need them anymore. When we get to November and December, if you are wearing a big coat like that, you've got a big problem, right? Because it's just way too hot. You have a totally different clothing, with t-shirts and shorts and thongs, that's the best way, right, when it's hot. You put off the winter clothing. Paul is saying you put off that old way. The problem with that analogy is we get through summer, we get back to autumn and I've got to put the coat back on again, right? Whereas what Paul is saying is we put off and we leave it off. That is the challenge. That is how we're to think about our new way of life. And it's not easy because that old way is still there. So how are we going to think this through a bit more? Well, I want us actually to skip to the end. And you can put the verse up now, Shane, that would be helpful, thank you. Um, you skip to the end of this uh, section uh, and then go back a bit. The reason I want to do that is because after Paul goes through and talks about all the putting off and putting on, and then he gives his summary, and I want to allude to us now to frame our thinking. He says to them, the foundation of how we're to live, maybe you could say the method of using examples, or the example, the, the way you make godly ethical decisions, he says, follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children... 
and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. You see, we never step away from the cross that saves us. We never walk away over here and think, okay, now this is where I figure out how I'm going to live as a Christian. We stay at the cross and we constantly meditate it and reflect on it and wrestle with, how does Jesus teach me how to live? And when we do that, the overarching framework of how we walk, how we live, verse 2, we walk in the way of love. Now, there is not a hint of love in one of the most ridiculous shows to ever put on television, Love Island. There is not a hint of love in that show. It is the other thinking, if you notice. It is all about indulging the physical, the emotional, the pleasures of myself and labelling it as true love. Lust Island is about what I can get out of it. Compare that to real love. Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us as an offering, a fragrant offering and sacrifice. Real love, where God, the Lord of the universe, Jesus himself becomes human to us who have rejected him and have despised him, dared in our sins and transgressions, and while not seeking his own benefit, faces all of his father's wrath so that you and I can be united to him. That mindset is the new way of thinking. That is what shapes everything we do. If you heard me say at the beginning that the Christian life sometimes is not about, okay, what are all the rules and the do's and the don'ts? There are things we do and don't do, but not from that frame of thinking, but because we walk in the way of love where our Lord and Saviour walked lovingly first for us. If you take nothing else out of today, you need first of all, first and foremost, to see that Jesus has stepped into your place out of love. And if you are not sure where you are with God, but you want to be right with him, it's to just trust and accept in that. You don't earn it. What we go on to talk about is how I want to be different now because of that. And maybe today, if that's you, that's where you do business with God. Jesus loved me and gave himself up for me and had a sacrifice for me. Is how you would see uh, chapter 5, verse 2. And then you would say, thank you. I'm sorry for being dead in the way I've acted. I trust in you. Thank you for making me alive. If you do that today, 
or you're wanting to wrestle with that more, can I encourage you to talk with your friends, those you know, come and have a chat with me. It's the best part of my weeks when it happens, when people want to talk to me about that. I say that they've shared, they've realised that they need to love Jesus because of what he's done for them. Don't leave it to yourself. Wrestle with it more. But because of this example, we should actually go back and start to wrestle a bit, I reckon. I think that's a good thing for us as God's people. And the list that's here and a whole bunch of stuff that Peter's going to talk next week should really challenge you. Some of it you realise I'm still really battling with that. Some of it you may be doing good now but you need to resolve yourself to not get lazy in the future. For some of it maybe you haven't even been aware that that's a problem. But you've got to get into it. And you've got to use your minds. So what should we put on and put off? I think in the outline, I've got one in front of me, but I think I put two columns there. Maybe you can just put in the things that you see as I'm talking that you want to, you want to challenge yourself to really work hard on um, or particular examples that you think of that's helpful. So first of all, the first thing is, is that we put off, the winter clothing we put off is falsehood. The summer shorts that we put on is to speak truthfully. That kind of seems obvious, right? But the reality is our lives are full of times when we can fudge truth and it's hard in certain work contexts when everyone else is lying or that's the way they make money in the business you work for or or in your business or in a profession to get out of trouble. But in verse 25, we read very clearly, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. Throws us back to the beginning uh, to chapter 4 that we looked at last week. We are one body together, and so we don't talk lies to each other. We don't deceive each other. We don't purposely divide each other. We speak truthfully. But that isn't licensed to say, I just say it how it is. <laughs> sometimes people, I, I'm a truth teller, so I'm just laying down the law and I'm going to be really blunt about it. I don't think that's actually right either. Speak truthfully to your neighbour. Indication is your neighbour is someone who you relate to well. You do it out of love, not out of your righteousness of being right and speaking the truth. Because more often than not, when people say they do that, they actually have an element of falsehood in what they say. And falsehood, have you ever noticed, I wonder if you consider world affairs ever, or we, we can't avoid it even if it's just from the comical, disastrous side of the way politics is going at the moment around the world, but the world operates in an ends-justifies-the-means way. And that means you can have a bit of falsehood when needed because you just got to get to the end point. But God's people, no matter the cost, don't operate that way. And it's really hard for us. We put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour. I don't think I could say I have done that perfectly in my life. I know I haven't done that perfectly in my life. I suspect you could say the same. Then it gets even more confronting, verse 26. It's good stuff though. Because we, by wrestling with this, we're becoming more like Jesus. Verse 26 
In your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Beautiful! I can be angry as long as I don't sin. Was that your first reaction? That's probably a dangerous first reaction. Because the reality is, anger is a big problem for us. That is a big problem for humanity. He's saying, in your anger, don't turn it into something that is godless. First of all, seek not to be angry and make sure you're really, really careful when you are. And he said, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. That is, do not let it fester. Do not let it get all pussy and worse and worse and infected and explode to the point where you can't even really tell now what's what was right and what was wrong. It's been going on for so long that it's now an irrational problem. The situation just gets worse and worse and bitterness carries you over. That's why he says that beautiful phrase that's kind of gone into the secular world as some phrases in the Bible do, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Because if you do, if you let it fester, there is someone who is thinking, I've got you. Do not give the devil a foothold. Satan loves it when God's people are angry. Why? Because God wants us to be... Remember in our outlining of Ephesians... What, do, what are God's people supposed to be? They're supposed to be what? United. They're supposed to go from two to being one. And that means that instead of being at war, they are what? In peace. You can't be in peace when you're angry at each other. And Satan does not want God's people to be at peace with each other under Jesus. He wants them to be angry. He wants them to be really, really at each other in loggerheads and at others. We need to have a reality check on how easy it is to be angry, I reckon. It's hard. We can even be rightly angry sometimes. Maybe not as much as we think in my reflection of my life, I reckon. I've been rightly angry at times when God knows me better than I am and if he was to give me an assessment of the situation, he'd probably say, most of that you were wrongly angry, Michael. But we need a reality check to remember... When we have been done wrong, it doesn't give us license to go off in all bitterness and rage, to stew, to retaliate with violence is the worst and should never be in the Christian community. We, We just have to take a reality check. I even have to take a reality check this morning. I was going over the talk this morning as I do and reflecting on it and I thought, I'm not a particularly angry person all the time. And then there was a confusion at home, Jen's on the kids, you know, and the kid, and Emily was still at home and I thought she was supposed to go with Jen because she was doing something else. You don't need to worry about the boring details of our family life. But the reality of me thinking things weren't working out the way they were, I got really, really angry with Amy. She's not in here now, I think she's gone to the kids, but I was going to apologise to her if she was here. And I got really, really angry, and there was no need to get angry, and as, even though whether I was right or wrong, I think it's irrelevant. And then I'm thinking, now I'm going to church, and I'm going to talk to everyone about being angry. That's how hard it is, I think. 
And I say that to you because I know even if we're not super angry people, and some of us probably have a really, really tough time with anger, that even if you're not an angry person, you have those kind of moments that I have and we need to wrestle with them. Bring that to God. Ask him to take you back to the way of love, to see the cross. Ask him to instill in your heart kindness and compassion and forgiveness. Then we see in verse uh, 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. Okay, good one that I don't think I've got a problem with. Excellent. But, yeah, no, not true. Uh, but, must, but must work doing for something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. The comparison is stealing, I take stuff because I want it. Okay, I want this, I think about it, I steal it. To We're supposed to be about other people kind of something you've heard me say before, being other person-centred, right? We're to be about other people. And so he says here, do something useful, not so that you achieve or you get higher up, or you you do it so that you have something to share with those in need. You do it for the sake of others. Whether that you're at home looking after the kids and for the sake of your kids, you bring them up well and you care and protect them, to doing a part-time job, doing a full-time job, to sharpening your mind, so maybe at uni so that you can do something that helps the community at large. But what you do is you do it usefully for others and with that mindset and not to steal for yourself. And it's hard if you get into a position at work of power and everyone else around you kind of budges it and steals it. If you're in politics or you're around politics, you definitely know what I mean. And it's hard. One of the first putting off lessons I ever had was about stealing. Uh, for you younger people, there's this thing called cassettes. I had like the best 90s Oh, it was the best 90s cassette music collection. My, my uh, really good mate, uh, Glenn and I, he used to, he had a job and he was really paid uh, quite well. I was just at uni and wasn't paid. He'd buy a CD at least every week. We had the same music. We'd, we'd discuss it and we'd go to his house, we'd listen to it and as we'd listen to it, I'd put in the blank cassette and press record. I had this fantastic collection. Like, I could tell you about how good this collection was and you would see, gee, I had good taste in music. It was brilliant, right? Now... <laughs> This, this, I reckon it was up to 300. Like, it wasn't small. It wasn't a small collection. And that was at uni. And around that time, I started to um, realise, oh, actually, this whole Jesus dying for me is actually what I believe and it transformed my life. And I realised that God did actually do that. And I was in a Bible study group with some young adults and one of the guys who was always the blunt one and it was helpful. And he said... Um, I was talking about music. I said, oh, did you buy that song? I said, no, I just got it on cassette. Oh, well, gee, saying that was uh, awkward. Because I didn't real, I didn't even think about it being wrong, right? And he said to me, what do you mean you got it on cassette? Oh, I've got this great uh, you know, music collection, blah, blah, blah. Glenn gets said, he's like, told him a story. And he's like, so you've got to burn that, right? I was like, what are you talking about? You're kidding? It is brilliant. And he's like, but you do realise that that is just stealing in a different kind of way. And I was like, nah, no it's not, I didn't go to the shops. <laughs> but, and there is blurry lines with copyright, I'm not going into that now, but this was blatantly obvious, right? This was a moment where 
I had a brother who was very helpful to me and didn't just leave it to me. He asked me for a couple of weeks. It took me a couple of weeks. But then I threw them all out. We need to think like that in all sorts of ways. We need to be um, maybe not as super blunt and harsh as my friends and dogs, but we need to be also loving brothers and sisters to each other as well in that. Unwholesome talk is the next one. This is what I like to call the Australian putting on and putting off verse. Do not let anyone, any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get, oh sorry, that's it there. Now, um, word I really find hard in that, do you know what word it is? Only. <laughs> Only what is helpful should come out of your mouth. Wow, I've said so many things that are just a nonsense or nothingness or unhelpful. But the new way of thinking goes, actually, we want to talk that builds up people. I'm still wrestling with whether I truly need to apologise for Jack the other day for putting up the photo and getting you up here, Jack. And I'm, 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 I'm not sure whether that was right or wrong, but uh, <laughs> it was wrong. I'm sorry. Um, um, yes, that's right. That's why I've done it. So, um, but if you weren't here the other week, I got Jack up and embarrassed him with an old photo, and um, and, uh, and and we talked about it. So that's what that was. But that's just silliness. Let's talk about truly being unhelpful in the way we speak to others. We're, we're the type of person that naturally will just lean towards harshness in the tone that we speak, in the words that we say, or we know deep down we say things that actually put us there and someone else there. It's really hard not to do that at times. It's very hard not to do that when we're not thinking about how are they going to receive my words? It's almost impossible to do it if you don't think about that. And we'll leave that one there for you. We could go further on that, but I just want to point out that it's very interesting at verse 30, it's where the Holy Spirit enters in and says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is grieved because what's the Holy Spirit do? Point us to Christ, shape us into Christ's likeness. likeness. And we, when we are living a life of unwholesome speech, he's like, you're talking in a godless way and I'm here shaping you to be godly. It grieves him. God himself is grieved by it. And so we get this beautiful little comparison at the end of the winter clothing that we put off and the summer clothing that we put on. Get rid of all bitterness. Wow, that's a sermon in itself, I reckon. It's a cheeky one, bitterness, that we don't realise how quickly it festers. Rage and anger, brawling and slander. And then if you haven't got it clear, just any malice, any maliciousness, it just doesn't belong to God's people. Instead, we're kind. Is that a character that people would say of you, that you're kind? Compassionate. Not in your mind, but in what you do to someone else. 
You seek forgiveness. Times that works a treat. Times it's so hard and constantly painful when it doesn't work out. The other person isn't wanting to play ball with forgiveness. That's got nothing to do with your attitude and mindset and you seeking it. Because God has forgiven you. There's a lot to be challenged by there, isn't there? I think the best thing you can do is to go home and digest it, probably to pull that open and wrestle with it more. To open up to yourself where you need to change. Let me give you, to finish, uh, just four kind of little ideas that may help you with this wrestling with these ideas. I think we should always... It's why I kind of framed it in the beginning. Always start with God's example in Christ. Now, when I was kind of at that stage with the cassette, something that was really big, it's still kind of around. Always people like to sell um, jewellery and stuff, so it'll always be on jewellery. WWJD, what would Jesus do? Did you ever, ever come across that idea? It was kind of right, but kind of really wrong. Because the mindset of it was, I'm doing this. Now, would Jesus do this? Now, that's not how we think about it. The idea of thinking about Jesus' example is to see the cross and then apply not, oh, would Jesus take off a jumper or put on a jumper in this situation, but how does the cross shape my thinking? What would Jesus do has been answered. He would give up his life for you as a sacrifice and then you figure it out. We start there. And Jesus' example, there's something in his example that he didn't give us. He didn't do. He didn't put off anything. And that's really important to remember. He was perfect. God himself who never sinned. That's why his sacrifice actually works for us. But it's in seeing his example we see what we have that he doesn't have that we put off. His sacrifice, his sacrificial death actually saves and teaches us. Let me give you an example. It was the example that I had in the Bible study but uh, that we've had this week in our community groups. But the groups where uh, the study was really good along, I think, but so we didn't get to it in ours and I thought it might be helpful just to go back to it. So if we apply the example of Jesus to this scenario, someone at church has wrongly misrepresented you to another person at church. Maybe that they've said something like, you have done this thing, that you've sinned in this way. You've slandered someone, but actually you know that you haven't. They've got it wrong. But they've misrepresented you. And now there's someone else at church who's, there may be a group of people that are treating you differently. In your justified anger, and there's an element where justified anger is right there. You've been wronged in a sense. You give the devil a foothold by gossiping about this person and you're right because you didn't do anything wrong, but when you tell other people about it, you kind of only speak half-truths about them. If we think about the example of Jesus at the cross, this new humanity, this new way of life, we would start and reflect on that. Remember, the first thing Jesus did when he came, his whole mission was to seek reconciliation. Not to talk about the other person. That forgiveness was what was needed. And there was a cost to him. Just because you've been wronged, oh, there's not going to be no cost to me. Oh, the reality is life is not... Perfect, this side of heaven, is it? 
revenge was not the, the, the plan of God. Revenge is the plan of the superhero movies. God's work had no revenge in it when we look at the cross. He had so many people trying to take him down. And it might mean then, in this scenario, we would seek to reconcile lovingly with this person, even if it causes pain, even if they don't want to, but it might also mean that your brother or sister who loves you will acknowledge, you know what, I got that wrong. You forgive me in that. Maybe you did slander a little bit. You know what, you did that wrong to me. There was a moment where I actually also didn't treat you. See the totally different way of thinking when you start with Jesus? The second idea, know your weaknesses of your former life. Are there parts are there parts of your old way that you find harder to get rid of than others? Yes, is the answer. And it'll be different for all of us. And walking in the way of love means we seek to be brutally honest with ourselves. We're a new human in Jesus. The baggage from the past will still be there, but it's been forgiven. And we should deal with it. I'm not wrestling with stealing now anymore since the great incident of the cassette tapes, I don't think. But if I thought that I would never steal again, I reckon there are certain circumstances where I would find I'd, I'd wrestle with it. In a certain job that I was in or a certain situation. We never assume that we have parts of our life that aren't susceptible we think of it as a project, this new life. It has an end point. Jesus returns. We have glory. We're in perfection. But till then, we work a change. It's not okay to say, well, this is just who I am. Jesus is powerful. He died and rose again. The Holy Spirit can totally transform your life. Paul, the writer of Ephesians, was out there killing Christians. He meets Jesus and he turned it all around. If he can do that, God can do that in him. He can change the things in you that you're, you're finding so much a burden in your life. Just even consider this week, not as a source of guilt, but so you can go, you know what, God, I really do want to change. Help me. Make it a source of encouragement to wrestle with, to acknowledge your sin and to seek to change. Thirdly, this is a really important one. I've come to realise whenever you preach about how we live, there's usually someone, because what's going on in their life, that is in danger of in a spiral of guilt where they blame themselves and they can't get out of it. Don't be content or riddled with shame. I've said it before, you'll hear me say it again a lot of the time, we must never forget grace. Jesus has saved you by himself. It should grieve us. We should hate when we reject his way, but not in this spiral of guilt that leads us away from him. And that's the big difference if we keep coming back to grace. Whatever you've done, God knows that you've done it and he still went to the cross for you. 
And lastly, always come back to the Bible's wisdom. Paul made this point very clearly. He's like, what the futile thinking, but you learned something. You learned it, that means you were taught it. You were taught about Jesus. You and I are taught about Jesus when God reveals himself in his word and we see it. If you want to change and be like him, you don't just go, yeah, okay, I know what I should do now. I've heard I don't be bitter. We constantly come back to God's word and learn it in Jesus. That's how we figure out what the new life looks like. We don't assume we know how we should live. There are sometimes really tricky areas of life and grey areas where we've got to do our best we can and use our consciences um, as best we can, but we don't assume we know. We also don't let, and this is a big one for some of us, and on some level maybe all of us, we don't let our emotions take the wheel of how we live. When we let our emotions drive how we live, Sometimes we're totally misaligned with what we've learnt. Because God has made us to be beautifully express our emotions, to live in affection towards him and with each other, but they're not designed to be in charge. Sometimes they're not in line with reality. We know that if we're actually honest with ourselves. Our emotions should line up with what we know of Jesus. That's why when we get to Next week, you know, the singing and praising actually plays a significant part in what the Christian should be like because it's where we turn our affections to God and turn our emotions to Him. More of that later. And we don't live by experience. The church has got in so much trouble when they make decisions on how Christians should live when they judge by experience or where culture is at. We figure things out by what's going on in our lives and, and all that kind of stuff, but we don't say, well, that's the standard from what we make the decision. We start with Jesus and then you you think, okay, well, and that's what's kind of happened. I've seen this here. I haven't seen that there. So it's contradicted God, God's word because that's been a problem. You don't start with experience. Those three things all play a part in our life. We should assume that we know that we, we shouldn't be angry. We should definitely be emotional people. We should definitely have affections turned to God and to loving service and affection of each other as is appropriate and embrace that. We should actually not think that experience doesn't play a part. But if we're going to put on the new self, those things follow when we see and understand and have learnt Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, it's such a powerful passage of scripture today because you've revealed to us how deep it is, your love for us, and it's that framework in which we need to deeply put off the old way. Help us to put on the new way, be honest with ourselves, to love each other. We thank you that Jesus gives us life. Help us wherever we're at with you to first and foremost look to you for our life being made alive because of what you have done. We thank you for him and we praise his mighty name. Amen.